Between 1-4% to of people throughout the world experience obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. Individuals with OCD are more likely to engage in non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, than those without OCD. And recent research has shown that among those who self-injure, having a diagnosis of OCD predicts more severe self-injury. Harm OCD is a subset of OCD in which a person experiences intrusive thoughts or mental images of violence towards themselves or others. And then there's self-harm OCD that includes thoughts of suicide and self-harm OCD that includes thoughts of NSSI, the focus of this episode. There's a lot of overlap between core features of both self-harm OCD and self-injury. They both include thoughts of engaging in self-injury and both include avoidance strategies to deal with those thoughts. It can sometimes be difficult to find a therapist who specializes in treating OCD, and it can be even more difficult to find someone who specializes in addressing NSSI. Even more rare is a therapist who can address both. So it can become really tricky. How can we differentiate between non-suicidal self-harm OCD and non-suicidal self-injury that's not even related to OCD? How can we differentiate between self-harm urges that are a symptom of OCD versus self-harm urges that are associated with NSSI? What about when there's ambivalence about injuring oneself, where someone may want to self-injure but also doesn't want to self-injure at the same time? Or when someone has both self-harm OCD and engages in NSSI separate from self-harm OCD? To answer these questions and to walk us through what a therapy session using exposure and response prevention for self-harm OCD might look like, I am joined today from OCD and Anxiety Counseling in Allen, Texas by OCD expert Nathan Peterson. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Nathan is a highly experienced professional starting his mental health career in 2010. He has extensive expertise in the treatment of OCD, anxiety, tics, Tourette syndrome, and various body-focused repetitive behaviors, or BFRBs. Additionally, he maintains a private practice in North Texas, in Allen. To further serve the community, Nathan has developed multiple innovative online programs designed to help individuals master their OCD, depression, and body-focused repetitive behaviors, such as hair pulling and skin picking, and I'll include his links to his web pages and social media handles in the episode notes. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me here. I'm so appreciative that you reached out. This is going to be an interesting topic. I agree. I agree. I like to ask people at the beginning of each episode, usually how they became specifically interested in non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI for short, but I know your interest is specific to OCD and you see a lot of self-harm or harm OCD. How did you first become interested in treating OCD and how often do you personally see OCD and NSSI co-occurring? Yeah, I originally started working with every diagnosis as most therapists do at the beginning and slowly started finding out that for many things, there's like, you could try this, you could try this. But when I ran into OCD, it was like, this is what you do. This is it. This is the treatment, very behavioral based. So instead of let's just talk in the session, let's actually do some behavioral work and face different fears. And 
I saw results and I loved it. I found that there weren't very many therapists that did it. And so it was a very needed thing in the community. And you really do have to be kind of a specialist in it to actually treat it correctly. I love it. And I decided that's just what I want to do just because I love seeing people get better and is is amazing. And how did you get your specialized training? Was it within like your graduate program or internship or uh, special certification? Yes. School teaches you nothing about OCD for the most part. I originally, my brother actually is an OCD therapist. So I, I did some training under him and learned just, you know, the ropes and realized I didn't think I was actually going to do OCD. It was just, I just wanted to learn how to be a therapist. And then taking it from there, there's different trainings that the International OCD Foundation provides to kind of help you specialize a little bit more in it and took all those and realized this is it. This is what I want to do. Yeah, I know that a lot of treatments or, or I guess the interventions with OCD therapists can get really creative. And I know I've, I've had to get creative with it. It can be challenging, but it's also really can be really fun being able to come up with different exposure exercises. I'm sure you have lots of creative ideas when you see people present to your appointments. Yeah, that's, to me, that's one of the most fun things is to kind of plan, like, what are we going to do and come up with lists of ideas and then actually practice them in the session or, or leave the office and go do things outside or whatever it is we're doing gets out of the typical, let's just sit on the couch and just talk for an hour. Definitely. For our lay listeners, can you define OCD and its diagnostic criteria, including what we mean by obsessions and what we mean by compulsions? Yeah. So with OCD, typically individuals will have a lot of intrusive thoughts, thoughts that they don't really want, but they're going to keep coming back anyway. You know, everyone has intrusive thoughts in the world, but the difference between OCD is that they've got these intrusive thoughts and it usually attacks what people really, really care about. And so it could be their religion or it could be their children that they, you know, child that they just had could be their relationship in some way or another. But it, an intrusive thought could be like, as an example, Last week, I was on a trip with my family, and we were on this little train, and it was going really, really fast. All my kids were on it, and my I had an intrusive thought. I don't have OCD, but I've got a lot of intrusive thoughts. The thought was, I hope this train crashes, and it was like, whoa, like that's that's really strange. I don't actually hope that happens, and so the brain has to interpret something like that. And so it usually is like, okay, well, you must be a bad person. You want your you want your family to to die or you want this thing to crash. And what about everyone else on the train? And typically our brain goes into this fight or flight mode and, and says, well, maybe you need to keep reassuring yourself that you're actually okay. And you know, you didn't really think that thought. No, you're, you're a good person. You wouldn't do that. You're a family guy. Like, what are you talking about? And that temporary relief happens. But then the brain's like, oh, this was important. You're going through that cycle again. I'm going to give you another intrusive thought and I want you to go through the same process. And so for OCD, that's typically what individuals go through. Like they've got that intrusive thought. They've got perceived threats that come from it. And they usually do a compulsion. So those are the things that they're doing to stay safe. So just like a car would be coming right at me, I'm going to feel this urge to get out of the way. But when we have just a thought and we're not in danger, it has to come up with something. And so it says, go wash your hands or go seek for reassurance or go research online or 
do all these behaviors because that's what's going to make you feel better. But really, it's reacting based off of a complete guess of a threat. So in a better way than, you know, like you have to have this for two years and you have to have this for whatever. A lot of times we can see this is persistent in somebody's life. It's usually daily, multiple thoughts a day. They're doing a lot of behaviors they don't want to do. And often there's logic tied to it. Like, I know I don't want to do this thing, but I keep doing it. The big key that I find is that it is so distressing to individuals because it's not the thing they actually want to do or, or think about. It just keeps coming back. I believe the average number of years that goes by that someone finally will seek treatment for OCD is like 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's a long time because typically what we see on TV is OCD is all about you know, washing your hands and staying clean and organizing. So when somebody has a harm thought or it's something about their religion, or whatever, it has nothing to do with what we see on TV. It's like, I thought everyone had these thoughts or, you know, my therapist just said, let's challenge it. Let's prove that it's wrong when really it's not a negative thinking style. It's something completely different. It's hard to find it if you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah, I think that's a key point that you mentioned as far as not necessarily countering the thought or reassuring it. And maybe if it's depression, yeah, we would tackle that with that intervention as far as exploring the, the rationale and the, the evidence for and against it and coming up with a balanced thought. But for OCD, we don't do that because that actually could reinforce the exact symptoms that we're trying to reduce. So it's a very different treatment. So knowing it's OCD or in this case, we're talking about non-suicidal self-injury, I think is really important. Yeah. Because what if the logic worked, then it would work. <laughs> and the logic gives some temporary reassurance often. And then the brain's like, well, I, are you sure though? I'm not sure. Maybe I have to explain it a little bit differently next time. Or it always tries to find a way around kind of the typical CBT that we use of challenging our own thoughts and disproving different things. So there's harm OCD. And then we're also talking about non-suicidal self-injury. So harm OCD, can you define that for our listeners? For OCD, as I mentioned, it does attack what people care about. There are different subtypes. So it could be harm OCD, scrupulosity is with religion. There's you know, all these different kinds. Harm OCD specifically, typically are intrusive thoughts that individuals might have about possibly harming somebody else, or it could be harming themselves in some way or another. And as I mentioned, like they don't actually want to do these things, but they sometimes feel even an urge or they have an intrusive thought. They have images even where it just feels so absolutely real and it's so distressing. It often happens when individuals have kids for the first time. They're like, this is a precious child that I have and I really love them and I care about them. They're a huge value in my life. And then OCD pops in is like, well, what if what if you hurt your child? Or if you drop them down the stairs? What if you, you know, comes up with all these ideas? Or it can even be almost demanding, like, you will do this thing. So they do everything in their power to protect, to make sure they don't do something like that. And not enough logic in the world is going to help them feel okay with it because the typical response is like, you know yourself, you're a good person. You you wouldn't hurt your child or you wouldn't hurt yourself or whatever it is. But the brain keeps throwing out these thoughts and like, how do we challenge something like that when it's so intrusive? And so people get stuck in this in this loop and just keep protecting even though they actually are not in danger. 
Do you see more harm OCD or harm intrusive thoughts related to harming other people or harming oneself? Typically, I see harming others because there's a there's a responsibility piece to it as well. I need to make sure that I'm good with the society, so I'm not I'm going to walk down the street and have a thought pushing this person to traffic that like that would be horrible if I did that. And so my brain's like, well, great, let me let me make you think that now and it takes these kind of no-no moments and says, well, you could do that. Well, you could do that. Obviously, there, there's kind of a mixture. Some individuals, it is harming themselves. It really is just what they value. People value possibly their body. They value themselves. They value their life in some way. And so the brain can say, well, let me figure out how to destroy that for you and make you question and doubt yourself quite a bit. You had shared with me that people with harm OCD do not engage with these behaviors. So can you talk a little bit more about that specifically as related to self-harm OCD and how that plays out as far as them believing that they truly do want to engage in the behavior versus not wanting to engage in the behavior? Obviously, I don't know every person with OCD, whether they have or not. Through our experience, someone comes in my office and they're like, I think this is harm OCD. The first things I look for are, what are all the compulsions that you're doing? So every time I have this intrusive thought of possibly harming myself, I like fold my arms to make sure that I don't, or I stop using knives. My husband has to carry my child up the stairs or whatever it is. Most of the time, typically it's weird because we don't give reassurance very often or use logic much, but like I have never, I've seen it one time in my career where someone actually has inflicted harm, but it wasn't because of the harm OCD. It was because of a a feeling that they had that was almost like a just right type of feeling. My body says I have to do it and I'm not going to get this thought to go away until I do. And so they weren't necessarily afraid of harming themselves. It was more of like, I just got to do it in some way. And and then this feeling goes away. I have heard of other individuals where my brain says I'm going to harm myself. Maybe I pinch myself or I slap myself with a rubber band or something just to say, I'm not going to go that far, but I'll do this. And then the, then, then that feeling subsides in what they're going through. But it's one of those things that we kind of just know for anyone that presents OCD to me, I kind of already know in my brain, like you are the least likely person to give into this behavior. And I could say that to them all day, but it doesn't change the fact that they're feeling it and it feels so real to them. I think it can be really tricky, at least for people that are not necessarily OCD therapists or OCD experts, to differentiate if a non-suicidal self-injurious urge is an actual obsession or if it's to engage in the behavior to cope or regulate regulate their emotions. For instance, you had mentioned the person having an intrusive thought of harming themselves significantly, so instead they pinch themselves or use a rubber band to snap their wrist, for instance. And when we talk about the definition of non-suicidal self-injury, we talk about immediate tissue damage done without suicidal intent, and it's not socially sanctioned within one's culture. It's not for display. So to an extent, snapping a rubber band, even though it can be helpful in the sense of a harm reduction technique for those who might self-injure more intensely, some would conceptualize snapping their wrist with a rubber band as a form of non-suicidal self-injury and a problem itself. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on how you differentiate between urges to self-injure that are associated with maybe as a coping strategy or emotion regulation versus urges to self-injure that are 
obsessive or intrusive as a symptom of OCD. That's tricky sometimes mm-hmm. to differentiate those. How do you how do you? It is so tricky. I think of the word egodystonic. So it's something that is not actually them, not something they want to do. They feel anxious even thinking about doing it versus somebody else who feels an urge. They might have the feeling, I don't really want to do this, but they give into that urge. There's not really, each person's different, obviously, but there's not really anxiety that is saying, danger, 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 don't do it, don't do it, where that's what we see with with OCD. Often, this is one of those topics that people don't talk about very often or bring up to any therapist because it's like, are they going to turn me in? Are they going to take my kids away? Are they? And there's been horror stories of that happening just because therapists didn't understand this is actually OCD. Even if there's no evidence whatsoever of self-injury, it's just scary. They don't want to risk missing something. And so they'll, they'll report in some way. I, I have had cases where individuals have said, I think this is harm OCD. When I really look into it, it wasn't. It was surprising to me, and I really wanted it to be harm harm OCD so I could do the treatment for it. But it was like that's actually out of out of my wheelhouse. That's not something that that I really specialize in. And I guess that's the piece I look at is is it egotistonic, or is it you know, something that you're, you're doing to relieve some type of emotional pain in your life or whatever it is, trying to figure out the reasons for it. I guess I think about what's the function, what's the reason for it. It's interesting you say that because when we're talking about addressing non-suicidal self-injury and treatment, we often explore the function of it. We do a functional analysis, what happens before, what happens during, what happens after. So what function did the behavior serve? And often it is to regulate intense or unpleasant or undesired emotions. So it's, yeah, so it's the same approach as far as addressing and diagnosing or differentiating OCD. So in the case of the person coming to you thinking that they had harm OCD, how did you differentiate that it wasn't? Was it the egodystonic versus egocentonic conversation or assessment? Yeah, that, that was one of the main, the main reasons it was, um, it's actually was like, I want to do it, <laughs> which was a pretty, pretty big giveaway for me. Well, people with OCD don't want to do it. And so for me, it's, it's figuring out, actually, there's some other OCD pieces here and other themes that are happening. So you actually do have OCD, but this piece of it is probably something completely different. And obviously didn't, didn't explore everything related to that. But yeah, it's interesting. It's, I mean, sometimes a really quick question, do you want to or do you not want to? <laughs> it's just really, really simple. Everyone is on their own path and journey with that. But with OCD, it's very like strong. I do not want to do this thing. I think that's a key takeaway as far as our conversation for people listening, wondering, do I have OCD? Do I have these intrusive thoughts of wanting to hurt myself? And you're saying like, well, if you, if you do want to hurt yourself in that case, you likely don't have harm OCD as it relates to that thought. But I wonder in those cases where there's ambivalence, where someone, they don't want to hurt themselves, for instance, we'll say cutting. They don't necessarily want to, but they know that if they do, they'll experience emotional relief or whatever type of relief. So it's an ambivalence. How do you clarify then? Yeah, I typically look at, are you actually doing the behavior or not? Mm -hmm. If you're doing the behavior, maybe there is something happening there that is outside of kind of the OCD realm you're regulating emotions in some way or another. And most of the time their answer is like, no, I'm not. I'm 
you know, I lay in my bed all day with my hands to my side to make sure that I don't give in to this behavior. Like that's how extreme individuals can be with it because they're they do not want to do it. And I look at all the things that they're losing because of the those compulsions that they're doing. You know, I don't get to hang out with my child as often, or I don't get to cut up vegetables for dinner. Or I don't get to do all these things. Whereas somebody with self injury, you know, I'm not sure how much they're losing in their life or what they're giving giving up to make sure that they don't give into that behavior. Yeah, I think there is a difference between distraction to avoid hurting oneself because they're trying to overcome that behavior they've engaged in it before versus trying to avoid any reminders or, or any implements that they might use to engage in the behavior and going to extensive lengths to prevent themselves from acting on something they've never done before anyway, but sitting, you know, lying in their bed with their hands to their side. I mean, that sounds like a compulsion and that's, that'll definitely interfere with someone's day-to-day functioning. Definitely. Anything that they are doing to avoid, make sure, which I know some people use as a different techniques as well. But with this, it's like, this would be the end of the world if I did this. And they just want relief of really anxiety and fear more than anything else. And they feel like that's going to be the thing that does it because it can feel so absolutely real. I think one of the challenges too is for those that actually do have harm OCD and engage in the in non-suicidal self-injury because focusing on distraction and coping with distress as opposed to engaging in the behavior that they've engaged in in the past as far as non-suicidal self-injury is helpful for that but if they were to take that same approach for harm OCD, it sounds like that would actually be the compulsive response to coping with the obsessive, intrusive, unwanted thoughts. And so that could actually increase the OCD or the intrusive, obsessive thoughts and reinforce it. And so it would be a problem response. So distraction for coping with distress for NSSI and refraining from the the behavior that one has engaged in in the past is helpful. But to do that same approach and harm OCD could actually reinforce the very OCD symptoms. Yeah, it's so tricky because the treatment that we use is exposure and response prevention, which means we actually are moving closer and risking that they might actually give into it. So it's getting back to living life. We might have people hold knives and might have them be all by themselves and have these thoughts and urges and hold a knife. And they ultimately realize I didn't give into this behavior. And it wasn't because they tried to protect, it's because they learned it's not actually me. It's not who I want to be and what I want to do. And I didn't have to do any safety behaviors to make sure I didn't. And so it seems very counterintuitive to somebody who is actively trying not to self-harm in any way. You know, we we go closer to these fears to realize they're, they're false signals that are being sent. And we've got to retrain the brain to see that. And so it can feel risky. Yeah, especially for therapists, I imagine the ethical dilemma, especially if they co-occur or not really sure being able to identify or differentiate between the two because one treatment could be a problem for the other. On the other hand, I think to some extent for those who do engage in self-injury and they they have a history of it and it's not harm OCD, there is a place for exposure, I think. I mean, we live in a world with sharp objects. We live in a world with dangerous things that we could use to hurt ourselves and we can't avoid them all the time. So I think to some extent, there's an element of exposure in someone who's trying to stop self-injuring to be able to be around something, an implement that they typically use 
and simply not use it and be exposed to that. I think that can be helpful therapeutically. So I think there is an element of treatment that's used for OCD that can help for NSSI to some extent. But going back to your comment about having the person be around knives or hold a knife, can you talk about or walk us through what a therapy session might look like with you if someone comes in with harm OCD and exposure and response prevention? We typically build a hierarchy. Instead of just saying, what is your worst fear? Oh, it's holding a knife. Okay, cool. We're going to hold a knife. Like that's not, that would be pretty overwhelming for an individual. Instead, we start with something really small. We write a bunch of ideas down on a piece of paper. It could be if you are holding, if you're thinking about a knife, how much anxiety does that bring you from zero to 10? And it could be that brings me like a five out of 10. If you were to hold a plastic knife, what about that? What if you were all by yourself? What if you were holding a real knife? What if your child is now in the room with you when you're holding this knife? What if you're writing down the word harm? It literally could be anything that kind of triggers that feeling. And then we re-rank them from zero to 10. Which one would be the hardest for you to do? Which one would be the easiest? And we typically start with the easiest. In the session, it might be, let's say we're working on a plastic knife. They're holding this knife and they're probably putting it back and forth in their hand. And we use a lot of uncertainty statements. So maybe, maybe not. Those are kind of the magic words. Instead of saying, I'm a good person, I would never harm anyone, I would never harm myself, I'm a good person, I would never do this, I'd never do this. We're actually saying, I might. It sounds weird, it sounds so strange, but it's like, maybe I might do this. We'll see. Maybe, I, I guess so. Well, you know, and it also teaches that just because we say words doesn't mean it's always going to come true and manifest into something. And so they're, they're sitting through the session. I'll ask, where's your anxiety level at just holding this knife? And they'll say maybe a six out of 10. Cool. Let's keep saying, yep, maybe I, har- I might harm myself. I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. I don't know. We'll see. And they're trying to not be protective of it. So they're really holding on to that knife. Um, they're not trying to keep it away from their body. We figure out all these compulsions they might want to do. And we're going to keep doing that usually until the anxiety drops by at least half. For some people, it doesn't matter if the anxiety drops. We're just going to keep going until their brain starts learning something different from that moment. And then we'll take a few minute break and then we'll go do it again. And then a few minute break and then we'll do it again. And then we'll do homework at home. Like that's where a lot of the treatment is done is I'm going to stick to this one thing till I'm so good at it. I'm just so bored of this plastic knife. And then I'm going to graduate to this other one. And then the whole idea is living with uncertainty. I mean, that's what it's all about. I have to be okay not knowing the future and being okay not knowing if I'm going to harm myself or not. Because what happens is when I stop reacting on that thought with all these safety behaviors, then I'm teaching it that it actually has no value. But if I keep protecting, then I'm saying, ooh, yeah, this is dangerous. I I could give in to this. And that's not what we want to teach the brain because we know it's ego dystonic. But sometimes they don't, they could even question that. Like, I don't know if I actually want to do this or not. I remember when I first started doing exposures with people, you know, years and years ago, I was scared. I was like, what if they did? Some people even go to the point of like, they're holding a knife to their arm or their neck, or it just sounds like crazy therapy. And I was like, but what if they gave into it? And now I'm going to be liable as a therapist to tell them that I just said, put this knife to your arm and, you know, whatever it is. And 
I quickly learned over time that like we took the risk and nothing happened. We took the risk and nothing happened. And that was the cool part about it is these individuals all of a sudden they stop getting these signals in their brain that like you're in danger. You could do this. You're going to do this. You're going to drop your child. You're going to whatever because they've taught it that it just doesn't matter. It's okay. We're not saying you will. We're not saying you won't. Like we're, we, we don't know. And that's what it's all about is let's just keep living life the way we want to live life. So as an OCD therapist, was that more difficult to treat compared to other forms of OCD? That one to me was one of the mo- more scary ones because I just didn't know. I I hoped that they wouldn't do it and <laughs> tried the best that I can to you know, make sure that I had the diagnosis right and, and all that. But over time, you kind of just learn. You just know it. This is this is what we do. Let's trust in the process and and let's go for it. I suppose it's very similar or even the same as contamination OCD, where there is that risk of getting sick. Yeah, that's the whole the whole idea is we have accepted all possibilities for any type of OCD. We can't be certain, even if we're so sure, we can't be certain really of anything because we don't have a time machine for the future. Even if we know I'm never going to do it, it's like, we don't know. But we know you're not living life and that's what we want to do. So let's get back to doing all the things you want to do. And so you had given the example of holding a knife, starting with just a, a plastic knife, or maybe even imagining it. The ideas that you, that you just listed off while well, starting with a plastic knife, going to a real knife, child is in the room. Are these ideas in that hierarchy that the typical client or individual that comes in, these are on their mind already? Or are you coming up with a lot of these ideas, presenting it to them and helping them decide where it lies on the hierarchy based on your experience? Yeah, a lot of the time, it seems to be the therapist that kind of comes up with these ideas. I love collaboratively really just saying, what are all the triggers? And sometimes that's it. Write down all the triggers. I don't watch anything with this in it, or I don't, you know, if my husband's out of the house, I'm not around my child or whatever it is. We literally write down everything until we can't think of any more. And that kind of just becomes the hierarchy. Well, let's, let's work with you, know, you holding your child in your lap while you're reading them a book. Like that can be an exposure. We don't have to purposely bring harm type thoughts in. We just know they're going to happen. If they're happening, our job's to respond differently to them. And I kind of think of it as, a fire alarm. Most of the time when we hear it, it's a false alarm. And so we've been conditioned to hear a fire alarm. We don't just jump up and like jump out of a window immediately. We know like, oh, okay, this is annoying. Here's it's going off again. And we're like, we're moseying around, like we're taking our time because we've been conditioned that most of the time, but there still is always that risk. This one could be a fire. I think about that with exposures, like if we react to it every single time we have the thought, then we're saying there's a fire, you're in danger. We got to kind of mosey around and test the theory out essentially is what it feels like. And it works out in, in their favor. And how often do you use imaginal exposure versus actual in vivo having the person expose themselves to something like holding a knife? Like when would you decide if they're just imagining it or actually holding it? Imaginal ones are usually kind of a first exposures for a lot of people. But if I can get away from that, I try not to do them because it seems like it sometimes gives it more power to just, I'm going to think about it. But if I held a knife, that would be really, really scary. 
And so it's kind of giving power to these other items and these other things. If I can skip that step, I try to. Sometimes it's, I mean, kind of just necessary to go there. And imagining would be, I might just be saying the word knife over and over or child or stairs or, or I'm literally imagining myself holding a knife, whatever it is. And some people can get really distracted too with it. Like how long can I stick with one thought? So that's kind of another downfall of it, but I still use them quite often with individuals. And in terms of harm OCD, self-harm in particular, with maybe using a knife that someone doesn't, they don't want to, uh, so it's obviously an obsession or an intrusive, unwanted thought. How often would you actually have them imagining going through with the very fearful thought that they have just in their mind, imagining doing that versus just holding a knife? So for me, I don't have them purposely bring up self-harm type of thoughts. I just let their brain do what it's going to do. So if it, you know, I'm going to have them possibly imagine holding a knife. If their brain goes there, we don't stop it. It's going to be there. It's almost like we're just letting the gate open. You're welcome to come in. You're welcome to leave whenever you want. I'm just not doing anything really with this thought. I'm not trying to figure it out or make sense of it. If I would really do it, if I wouldn't, if I like it, if I don't, it's really just like, hey, look, there's a thought. Yeah, cool. I guess I could. I mean, I might do that someday. I don't know. It's kind of using that type of language. And yeah, and I, I have heard of some therapists who are like, well, let's think about doing that. And, you know, I think every person's different in the way that they might approach it. But this is kind of what I found works for me. It's just like, let's just let our thoughts beat our thoughts and practice responding differently to them. I guess in those cases, then it would be up to them to disclose to you that's the exact thought that they're having, because I guess there's no way you would know that that's where their mind is going unless they tell you. So do you ask them specifically where their mind is going? Yeah, I focus more on, are you doing any compulsions in these moments? So are you pushing any thoughts away? Or are you putting your hand in a fist because you don't want to make sure you you hurt yourself? Because it, I mean, you know, we use the example of knives, but it literally could be anything. Like, what if I punch myself out or, you know, I don't know, crack my neck. It could be anything. It's just making sure they're not doing any safety behaviors in those moments. Because what we find is that the content doesn't really matter. We're working on OCD. And so if we talk too much about like, what are you thinking about? Oh, how often are you thinking about possibly harming yourself? Oh, you know, this type of stuff. It's good for like an assessment just to kind of see where they are. But we try to stay away from talking about the content pretty often because that's not the problem. The problem is OCD. Yeah, the exposure, and you mentioned some safety behaviors, which might be a term that people aren't familiar with. Can you briefly define safety behavior and then talk about what compulsions, you, you gave a couple examples, but what other self-harm compulsions there might be in response to self-harm obsessions? Yeah, a safety behavior is essentially a compulsion. Anything they're doing to make sure they don't give in to it. So I often see people folding their arms, or putting their hands in their pocket, or just avoiding. I don't watch these kind of TV shows anymore. I don't even walk in the kitchen. The risk that I might have this urge to grab a knife and do something, or it's just making sure they stay safe, essentially. But they're staying safe based off of a complete guess that is unfounded. And so their brain actually kind of congratulates them and says, hey, good job. You avoided this. And the only reason you're safe is because you avoided it. So you know what to do next time. And it just perpetuates this cycle and just keeps going, going, going. What about some mental safety behaviors, some mental compulsions that no one can see or observe? Yeah. 
people will often push a thought away or they'll say, no, 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 no. Or they could say, if I count to six, this thought will go away. Or they could pray. That could be a compulsion as well. Ask God to take this away. And then they're praying a hundred times a day. It's possibly reassuring themselves that, you know, I would never give in to this or mentally reviewing or, or everything in their past to see if they really are this kind of person. Conversations that they've had with other people, they'll just review it and, and see if, do they think I would do something like this? And it's really just problem solving is an, often a big compulsion or mental ritual that they might do. So in doing these exposure exercises for harm OCD, specifically for self-harm, is it appropriate to expect those thoughts to just eventually go away? Or is there an ultimate goal that's different? Yeah, the nature of OCD is either what happens is is the thoughts reduce to a point where they really just don't notice them anymore. Or if they do, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that thought. But it, OCD plays whack-a-mole. It's like, let me pull this thought down. Okay, you took all the value away. It's not fun anymore. Hey, but you know, you just had a you just had a child. Let me make you worry about that. Or I know you've got really into religion lately. Let me question if you're good with God or if you're blasphemous in any way. Or it just tries to find the next value in somebody's life, you know, or your relationship, or you know, whatever it is. And so, it's really interesting when we start really working on this treatment. Individuals will often come in and are like, you know what? I like I know this was scary, but now I'm worried that. Like I married the wrong person or I married that I don't love them enough or it just switches. It can switch literally overnight sometimes for people, which shows us pretty clearly that like this is OCD because something like that doesn't switch that quick, just attaches to the next value. Some people I, I have seen who don't have any thoughts anymore related to it. And so it's having a clear expectation of like, what is recovery? What does that actually look like? Often individuals will compare it to diabetes. An individual is going to have diabetes the rest of their life, and they're just learning to manage symptoms. But for people with OCD, you're doing a lot of treatment right now, but there's a point where you're just managing. It's just small every once in a while. You're using it maybe, maybe not, or you're like, you had an intrusive thought about a knife. Like, cool, I better go grab that as fast as I can to remind myself I'm still in control of this thing. We're moving closer to the threat instead of pulling away. I like that, basically teaching people to do their own exposures to maintain the recovery and maintain the reduction of symptoms. Yeah, it's it's a lifestyle. It's got to be a lifestyle. I'm not sure if you've had this experience, but I'm thinking about what if we have an individual with self-harm, intrusive, unwanted, obsessive thoughts that are distressing, and you do the exposures, and then they have the thoughts, but they're no longer distressing like an exposure would do. You know, you'd want the distress to go down. But now they start to worry about the fact that they're not worried about the thoughts. Definitely. Yeah, it's actually more common than, than we might think. And actually, I see that across the board with all themes of OCD. It's like, oh, no, I'm not feeling anxious. So if I'm not feeling anxious, what's going to keep me from doing this thing? It actually turns into what they call kind of meta OCD. It's like having obsessions about OCD in a way. And I mean, I understand that that would be a scary thought because it, what the brain has said is that I am keeping you safe. This anxiety is keeping you safe. So if you're not feeling it, what now? And so <laughs> what the cool thing is, like the treatment's the same, no matter what type of OCD somebody is going through. It's like, 
cool. I'm not feeling anxiety yet, but I might give into it now. I mean, cool. Sure. I might do it. We'll see. Oh, I'm so scared. It's kind of using that attitude of like, I really just don't care. And trusting. It's kind of just another way of OCD to, you know, I kind of imagine we've pushed it into a corner and it's going to say anything to get you to attach to it. So, oh, you're not feeling anxiety. Let me out. Let me out. And wants you to just grab on. And so if we live this lifestyle of uncertainty, we use that with everything. Yeah, sure. I might do it. I don't know. We'll see. And be ready for the next thought or the next thing that's like, oh, I didn't think about that. But it's the same answer every single time. And I would imagine you also get in these cases and other OCD cases where, well, he wouldn't have me doing this exposure if it wasn't safe. Mm -hmm. So there's that reassurance. So that actually is a safety behavior, (laughs) a mental safety behavior that could impede or interfere with the exposure, perhaps. Yeah. I've had people say that before, and I'm sure they've thought it. But my response is like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a time machine. I don't know if you're going to or not. And which is like, oh, why did he say that to me? Now I'm more worried about it. But that's the whole concept. And the whole idea is that I actually don't know. You don't know. But naturally, I can see, you know, if he's having me do this, I'm, I'm probably good. But that logic isn't enough for them to just stick with that and feel good, so, which is why we just keep going with the treatment. Yeah, I think if anything, it would just help them to tolerate that exposure without actually fully allowing themselves to be exposed to that distress and uncertainty. Yeah, we often will add these things into their treatment plan of like, let's write a story about how your therapist was wrong about doing these exposures and you possibly gave into it. And they read that story over and over and over and over and they're like, yep, might happen. Uh Uh-huh, sure, we'll see. Just to say, let's change the story that's in your brain and actually just make it happen. And this is a scary thing to do. Such a great example. Before we bring it to a close, I remember you talking about self-harm or self-injury being used as a compulsion, as a compulsive behavior. So someone actually engaging in the behavior. So it's not necessarily the obsession on the one hand, but it's the compulsion to deal with whatever obsessions they're having. How would you treat that differently? What would that look like? Yeah. If something is a compulsion, no matter what it is, we obviously, we try not to do it uh, the best that we can, or we delay the amount of times, how often somebody is doing it. So if an urge is being felt and they actually do engage in that behavior, it would be something where, what is the kind of the precursor to that? What are you feeling and thinking about this moment? What are you trying to relieve it could be a religious thought, possibly, or it could be whatever OCD, whatever it is. But ultimately, it's like they have actually control. They know they can go without doing it. And so it's actually sitting with the discomfort. I have this urge. I feel like I'm going to do it. And it's a compulsion. We would treat it just like anything else. I feel this urge to go wash my hands. It'd be the same thing. I'm going to sit with this discomfort and figure out what the actual core fear is. It's possibly not even about harm, about them harming themselves. It's actually about their religion or their relationship or whatever it could be. So we're focusing more on like, yep, maybe I married the wrong person. Maybe I didn't. I'm going to sit with this discomfort and maybe I give into this thing, maybe not. And if they do, we learn from the experience more than beat themselves up about it. It's like, no, we gave into it. So what are we going to do next time? We know whenever you're in your room, it's 7 p.m., the door is closed. You always give in to this behavior. 
let's have this on our mind when we're there, like a sticky note. This is a compulsion. I'm, I'm not doing this thing. Just like an exposure, we can sit with that discomfort and it actually will reduce all on its own. If we can focus on the actual treatment regarding whatever their OCD theme is, that's what we want to work on and just treat it just like any other compulsion. I see that very relevant to skin picking, self-excoriation, and even hair pulling, trichotillomania to an extent, tolerating the distress to want to act behaviorally on the urge. Yeah, we often do competing responses for that and teach them to sit with the discomfort and, and often pick something else to do in that moment and make it really, really, really meaningful. I think this is so relevant, though, too, just how we would address urges to engage in non-suicidal self-injury to be able to tolerate that distress, not knowing what's going to happen, like how long is this experience of distress going to last? How long is this discomfort? Can I possibly actually tolerate or get through this emotion safely or without doing anything? Can I sit with it? Yeah, I think that's very relevant, not only to OCD, but also to NSSI. Yeah. And and. People can. That's the cool part. It's just being willing to sit with it and not get out of it, not try to do anything to get the feeling to go away as fast as possible. Because I think that's where the behaviors come in. It's no, let me sit with this and not just sit there and stare at a wall and just wait, but can I do something meaningful with this moment? Um, whether I'm doing an exposure or I'm you know, using some mindfulness or whatever it is to sit with that. And I find that the duration of discomfort reduces just over time. They just have to have that experience over and over and over again. And sometimes self-injuring short circuits that experience, short circuits the ability to tolerate that distress to know like actually it could have gone a little bit longer without self-injuring. Well, to bring things together based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents specifically about harm OCD? For parents to be really aware of Obviously, get a diagnosis for your child. When you know it's harm OCD, it's so hard not to give reassurance as a parent because we want our kids to feel great and wonderful. And they often will come to a parent and be like, I'm so scared. I might do this. Their parent will accommodate for them. You don't ever have to walk in the kitchen or you sit on this couch, not on this couch. Or you, you know, that's what a parent does. So it's learning their role within treatment. Often seeing a therapist is great for that to see an OCD specialist. People go to like iocdf.org, it's the International OCD Foundation. There's lots of resources online as well for parents to learn their role within treatment. But I think that's the biggest thing is like, what is my role as a parent? And it's usually try not to reassure or accommodate. And then at the same time, love your child. I think that's all they need sometimes is like, they just need love. They need someone to care about them. And you not accommodating actually means that you really love them. It is so hard, but it shows that you want them to get better. What would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians or researchers about harm OCD, specifically thinking how we do have a lot of people, uh, not that many, unfortunately, who are experts in OCD like you. And then we have a small group of professionals that are experts in NSSI specifically, but very few that cross both areas. So knowing this, what would you recommend to professionals? Learn about it, obviously. Learn about OCD and, and, and be okay referring out if it's not something that you're comfortable doing treatment for. I think going back to the ego dystonic 
that's the piece for a lot of therapists to learn is when someone comes in with harm OCD, like that's what we're looking for. It's not really who I am. And often we can see a history too. This isn't the first thing most of the time that they've experienced that just popped out of nowhere in their 20s or 30s. It's like, no, they've done behaviors when they were younger, most likely that they probably didn't even know were OCD related. And so gaining a history can be helpful for that as well. There's plenty of trainings online on the international OCD website, not immediately like, oh, do I need to report this person? Or do I need to take them to the hospital because they, they're going to harm themselves? Because it can really sound scary if, if you don't know what you're looking for. So I think it's just kind of taking a step back and using resources to, to learn more about it. That's great. What would you recommend to people with lived experience of harm OCD? Trust in the treatment for real. It, it works so well when somebody does it, whether they can afford a therapist or they're doing treatment at home. Individuals don't often have to go to a therapist to start treatment. Like there's so many resources online for people to just start reducing symptoms. And often what it is, is like, can I reduce a compulsion? And then can I reduce the next compulsion? Can I reduce the next one? And often that becomes the treatment is I'm sitting with uncertainty and discomfort long enough for my brain to learn I'm good. I'm, I can handle this thing. And if possible, you know, go see a therapist to help you through the process because it's sometimes really scary and it's helpful to have someone on your side that is going to help you with the process. Yeah. Don't wait that average 10 years before getting therapy for that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Nathan, for this really interesting conversation that isn't so much about the behavior of self-injuring, but about the thoughts of self-injury, specifically related to OCD. So it's a very niche expertise, and I'm really glad that we got you on the podcast. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's such an interesting thing when, when it feels like they can cross paths, but really sometimes they're just their own thing. Yeah, it's awesome. And I'm sure the listeners are going to love just learning about this. And sometimes people have those light bulb moments like, oh, this whole time, this is really what I was going through. I was so scared. And it's okay to connect with others and just learn more about it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.